Medici seems more yourself. Do I? Yes, I do. I've always been myself, even when I was ill. Only now I seem myself. And that's the important thing. I have remembered how to seem. What, what? Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. It's been almost 200 years since we were in England with Shakespeare in Love during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. So we've essentially skipped over the Scottish Stuart monarchs. Queen Elizabeth was succeeded by James I, the King of Scotland. He was actually Scotland's sixth King James. This is the same King James who commissioned the famous version of the Bible that bears his name. He was succeeded by his son Charles I, who was beheaded and replaced during the English Civil War that left Oliver Cromwell in charge. The crown was restored a decade later with Charles I's son, Charles II, who was followed by his brother, James II. More conflicts led James II to abdicate the throne in favor of his daughter and her husband, who ruled jointly as William and Mary. William was his wife's first cousin, both of them being the grandchildren of Charles I. After William and Mary both died, the throne passed to Mary's sister Anne, who was the last of the Stuart monarchs, with the throne then passing to a great-grandson of James I, the German-born George I, the first of the Hanover monarchs. George I was succeeded by his son, George II, who died just before the end of the Seven Years' War we discussed last week, and he was succeeded by his grandson, George III. George III was born two months premature and wasn't expected to survive. He was well-educated with a heavy dose of science, which was new for British royalty. His father died in 1751, which left the 13-year-old George as heir to the throne. When he was 22 years old, his grandfather died, leaving him as King George III. Obviously, he wasn't George III before that. This accelerated the need to find the young man a suitable wife, and he was married less than a year after taking the throne to a woman he did not meet until their wedding day, a German princess named Charlotte. By all accounts, the two were extremely fond of each other and had 15 children. Today's film opens in 1788 with a lively and animated 50-year-old George III. Among other things, he's still sore about the loss of the American colonies. In a speech to Parliament, he mentions our possessions in North America, but is forced to correct to our former possessions in North America. The overall mood to start the film is jovial. The king is gruff and lovable. He talks everyone's ear off and uses a quick what, what as a button at the end of nearly every sentence. While hearing grievances from citizens, a woman pulls a knife and stabs the king, but it was only a fruit knife, as they call it, and it also glanced off a medallion on his coat, leaving him completely unharmed. The king doesn't even want her punished, as she's clearly not right in the head. And this was an actual incident, though it happened two years earlier in 1786. The woman was committed, and the already popular George grew even more popular with how he handled the situation. Those closer to him, both rivals and supporters, do express concern over the king's unusual behavior, which they refer to as regal nonconformities. He's always raving about America and strangely has no mistresses. A king without a mistress? It's unheard of. The king's eldest son, 
also called George, so we'll refer to him by his title, the Prince of Wales, ponders with his men if he could be named regent in the event his father became seriously ill. He's 26 years old and ambitious, and him and his buddies discuss all the hypothetical good they could do for the kingdom. One morning, the king wakes up at 4 a.m. and is irate that his staff isn't already awake to wait on him. He starts running around the castle in his bedclothes as they chase after him. They stop in a field outside where the king has them all reciting the Lord's Prayer before he then throws himself on an attractive young woman, kissing her as if there weren't a dozen people watching him, including his wife, who has now caught up to those nervously following the king around. They all run back inside, and the king barges into a random woman's room and relieves himself in her chamber pot. The servants note that his urine is blue and show it to the king's doctor, who takes only a passing interest. Cutting ahead briefly to the closing text of the movie to address this puzzle, it says, quote, The color of the king's urine suggests that he was suffering from porphyria, a physical illness that affects the nervous system. The disease is periodic, unpredictable, and hereditary, unquote. This does remain a decent guess for George III's trouble, but we don't know for sure what led to his bouts of madness. Back to the movie. An advisor tries to tell the king that he's not fit to appear in public, but the king isn't listening. They're headed to a concert, and the king loudly offers his support for the musicians, and then offers instruction. He takes up the baton and directs them himself. Then he starts playing the organ, poorly, while shouting tips to the orchestra. The crowd in attendance is dumbfounded at this behavior. His son, the Prince of Wales, tries to intervene, and the king says, I'm old and infirm, I'll not bother you long. The prince is ashamed at the thought that he wants his father out of the way and says, Hush, father. The king then snaps at him. Hush? You dare stop the king of England from speaking his mind? That night, George forces all his younger children out of bed in the middle of the night and says they must seek higher ground. He even calls out the names of two of his children who have already died. His advisors start to submit the king to his doctors to find some remedy, like blistering his back with hot glass to pull the humors from his brain. You know, good old 18th century medicine. The king is deteriorating quickly. He says he can hardly see or hear. Half of parliament wants to promote the Prince of Wales to regent. The vote doesn't pass yet, as many think the king's condition is being exaggerated by the ambitious supporters of the Prince of Wales but the closeness of the vote shows that the tide could turn that way. A new and controversial doctor is recommended, and he basically uses tough love, restraining the king whenever he acts out, like they gag him and tie him to a chair. When he's calm, he can be let up. The king fights this at first, but as it gradually starts to work, the king accepts the treatment and even will voluntarily sit in the chair after he throws the fit as opposed to being dragged to it as he had initially been. The extent of the king's impairment has been concealed from the public and from parliament, but the tide is shifting in support of the Prince of Wales. A vote passes by three votes that the prince should be named regent to rule in his father's place. But that was just the vote to move forward. A formal bill must now be drafted. The queen, played by Helen Mirren, sees naming her son regent as effectively a death warrant for her husband. The king learns of the bill and is upset, but his doctor notes that the bill doesn't matter if the king is better. The treatments seem to have worked, and the king is calm and himself again. He says, I've always been the same, but 
now I again know how to seem. Basically, he's been acting on every thought and impulse as if he were having fun within a waking dream. He's now regained his proper demeanor and even adds a quick, what, what? His signature little tag that had disappeared during his illness. They race the king back to parliament before the bill can pass, and that's basically the end of the movie. The king is himself again and back in control of the country. And this is all pretty accurate. It was in February of 1789 that the Regency Bill passed in the House of Commons, but the king recovered before it could pass in the House of Lords. George III is often cast as the villain of the American Revolution, though historians note that he was simply reluctant to casually surrender a territory as vast and resource-rich as the colonies. Further, most contemporary European monarchs would likely have been far more vicious. In the movie and real life, George seems to have ultimately accepted the independence of the colonies and met with John Adams in London, who had been made the American minister to London, a scene even depicted in the HBO series John Adams. Again, as far as today's movie, it seems to be a pretty faithful interpretation. A few anecdotes the film didn't include were the king talking for hours on end without pausing and foaming at the mouth, or a time he supposedly shook hands with a tree thinking he had to be the king of Prussia. In 1804, so 15 years later, the king's madness returned, and again in 1810, which began a horrible final decade for poor George. Cataracts left him all but blind, his youngest daughter died at the age of 27, and George was unconsolable. The Prince of Wales was named regent, this time with his father's consent. By the end of 1811, George III was permanently insane and lived isolated from society in Windsor Castle until he died in January of 1820 at the age of 81. Up to that time, he was the oldest and longest reigning monarch in British history. The Prince of Wales formally succeeded his father as King George IV, but had no surviving children, so the throne went to his brother who reigned as King William IV before himself dying without a direct heir. So up next was an 18-year-old granddaughter of George III named Victoria. She, of course, famously reigned for over 63 years, so a whole era has been dubbed Victorian England. An interesting historical side plot to the film today involves the mistress of the Prince of Wales, a woman named Maria, she was a Roman Catholic, so the prince could not legally marry her without losing his place in the line of succession. In 1785, they married in secret anyway, but the marriage was declared invalid as the king had not consented to it. The movie slides this event to late 1788 just to fit everything within the time frame of their story. Supporters of the prince are worried that this indiscretion will ruin their whole regency plan before it even gets started. The movie doesn't go into it, but ultimately the prince married a cousin whom his father insisted upon in 1795. It didn't work. The couple only had one child and seemed to have been separated for the rest of their lives, with the prince, and later as King George IV, remaining attached to the same Maria, his original mistress. He had other mistresses as well, and it was likely he fathered a handful of illegitimate children, but again had no surviving heirs. A trend I want to mention briefly as it can be seen throughout our timeline during this period, powdered wigs. Why the heck was everyone wearing these things? Well, it was really little more than a fashion trend, though there was also a hygiene element to it as well. In a world full of lice, it made a lot of sense to keep your hair cut short and then have fun accessorizing with the wigs that were easier to keep lice free and clean. It's also a trend that was popularized by virtue of kings and queens adopting the fashion. Queen Elizabeth I wore a wig. So did King Louis XIII, whom we met in The Three Musketeers. 
uh, to hide his baldness. The style really took off during the reign of his son, King Louis XIV of France. Soon, anybody who was anybody just had to have a wig. The fashion died out in the late 1700s after the British began taxing wig powder. Though in some places, they remained a symbol of authority, which is why we still see them today in British courtrooms. Elsewhere in the world around this time, big things were happening in the newly formed United States, of course. The 1788 and 89 of our film today saw the ratification of the Constitution and the beginning of George Washington's presidency. The French Revolution began in 1789, which we'll deal with extensively later this month. Three years later, the New York Stock Exchange is established. And in December of 1791, at the age of just 35, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart died. And it's his life we'll explore next week with the 1984 Oscar winner for Best Picture, Amadeus. Amadeus.